will be everywhere. Good morning. Okay, we are reading from Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawn near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over mm -hmm. one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or that woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws of the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he came, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother is coming, your father has killed a fat cat because he has received back safe. He received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fat cat for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Pray. Father, we just thank you so much.
that your compassion is so great. Your mercy is so good. And you did not wait for us, Lord, to seek you up, but um, you saw us, you ran to us, you embraced us, and you received us. Um, Lord, at, um, at many seasons, at different seasons, we've been both the prodigal and the son who was self-righteous and jealous. Thank you that you see us through and through, Lord, and that you sent your son to make a way for us to be embraced by you, to be welcomed home. We just ask that this morning as your word is preached, Father, that you would um, grant Jonathan much grace yes. um, as he seeks to um, just feed us the word, Lord, help us to receive it and, and be nourished. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Jackie. It's a, a lot of text to read this morning, but I want us to see it all in one place together. And there's some vital truth in here. And you should know that Tim Keller, when he preached through Luke 15, did it as a seven-week sermon series. And so I'm better than Tim Keller because I'm doing it all in one week. I'm kidding. Um, so if you don't find nourishment from this meal, there are seven you can go and uh, listen to and be blessed as well. And you've probably all heard, if you've been in the Christian church very long, one or seven sermons on these parables that Jesus is sharing. So we want to look at them in total this morning, the, the bulk of them and what Jesus is presenting before his people. And I think the key thing for us to see is that the Father's love forms a family. It's vital. It's the expression that we want to be part of, to recognize his love, and to be formed into a family. Now, around the Schrader house, Ewan and Stacy are currently working on a project that was one of Ewan's birthday presents. They are tracking and then making a poster with our family tree on it. And we can go back like 15 generations on some of the branches of the tree, so it's quite a fun little um, enterprise they're doing. And it's not so much a tree, but it's more of a sphere how they're doing it, but they're finding these ancient relatives that essentially are responsible for giving us the color of our eyes, the shade of our skin, the personalities that we exhibit in life, and the blood that our hearts pump to give us life. And as they're having fun doing this research and uh, writing down the names and mapping it out for everyone to see, it is storytelling in a way for us as a family. It's telling us about ourselves, our roots as a people, or at least where our name came from, in the very least. The truth is that families are funny things. Right? We don't often choose them. We're born into them, or adopted, brought into them. They are things that routinely drive us a little bit crazy. Uh, I don't think it's family if it hasn't driven you crazy at some time in your life. But there is a bond that most of the time overrides all other categories of connection. We stick with each other and we say, because we are family. This is also why it seems too harsh for us when Jesus, just in the last chapter of Luke's gospel, says that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sisters, he cannot be my disciple. 
His family is a high priority. And I don't want to rehash last week's sermon. And we just recognize that commitment to this king is not meant to merely rival that of the family connection, but it's to stand above it, far beyond it. And those that share that commitment then are actually bonded together like a family. And family still remains the image, probably the best image we have in Scripture of what real community looks like. So his kingdom, the kingdom the Messiah has come to bring to bear, is forming a family, this vital community that those coming to him are actually meant to enjoy, to embrace, and to celebrate with. In the midst of that goal of what is meant to be, there is idolatry. There's running after the wrong things that gets in the way and then ends up missing this community. That's exactly what we see unfolding in Luke 15. There are people meant for the family that are now going to miss out on it because they could not come and celebrate. They stuck with their idolatry. Luke 15 is is a fun chapter because it's all parables here. Jesus proves a point by essentially painting on a canvas of rescue to an audience of curmudgeons. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh, no. It's so scandalous. How dare Jesus receive sinners and eat with them? We think of what came immediately before this interaction, this public cry of grumbling of these scribes and Pharisees. We have the invitation into the kingdom that Jesus is talking about, this idea of belonging to something greater than self. And it's told through the image of this grand banquet that is to come. Those making excuses miss out and the unseen in the culture or the nobodies of society actually have a seat at the table. That's who's invited in, who is given the place of honor. And it's just too much for the religious elite. They don't want to hear that. They would far prefer if this celebrity rabbi of Jesus would just choose to spend time with the cultured people. With the quote-unquote holy people, not the wretched of the streets. But that's exactly who he came for. When he reads from the scroll of Isaiah in Luke 4, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The scribes and Pharisees are angry with Jesus for welcoming tax collectors and sinners because they failed in this moment to understand God's heart for humanity. He longs for the lost to be found. He's filled with joy when even a single sinner repents and relationship is restored and there's family added. So Jesus tells the grumbling curmudgeons some parables and the first two is just like he's stretching a canvas to a frame before painting the masterpiece that is the last parable. And this canvas then is one of the kingdom and the value of those that are lost. Essentially asking the question, what are people worth spiritually? 
So he begins with the parable of the lost sheep. And he says, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country to go find that one that was lost? And of course, in the story, the people are sheep. As insulting of a comparison that is, because he's comparing humanity then to this dumb animal that's prone to falling off cliffs and wandering away from the herd. It, it, that, that can be insulting, but it's still the picture of who we are. And this picture of being sheep is not meant to be foreign to the audience that hears this. He's promised to rescue his sheep all throughout the prophetic books of Scripture. We even see in Ezekiel 34, it says, For thus says the Lord God, Yahweh, right? Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of cloud and thick darkness. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. There's this picture of a God who's personal and he's coming after his people. He's going to search his sheep out and rescue them. I wonder how many of these Pharisees had talked about in synagogue that truth from Ezekiel. And here Jesus is saying, which one of you, if you had a hundred sheep, wouldn't go after the one? And the shepherd invites his friends to rejoice that the sheep is back. And he says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. We look at this and we say, wow, this is a straightforward parable. It's good that the lost sheep is found and brought back. Good that sinners are found and brought in. Like, whoo, praise God that he comes after the strange sheep. But it's a striking story because I think there are two key absurdities in this parable that we don't always recognize. First, you have to understand, no one in this audience has 100 sheep. Like, we would be surprised if even one man among the audience had the wealth to have a herd of that size in the first century. So when Jesus says, what man of you, they all lean in because they're made out to be more wealthy than they actually are. This is beyond what's normal. So the story is just a step beyond what they could actually attain. And so they listen into this story. Maybe they have five, maybe they have ten, maybe even some are wealthy and have 20 sheep in a herd that they are responsible for. But a hundred? The second absurdity is just leaving the valuable 99 unprotected. And did you notice what Luke said? In open country. It's not even like in a safe place, in a sheepfold. They're just left out to wander where that lost sheep was wandering before he left the herd. And to those listening in the first century, it would have been reckless of the shepherd to leave the mass while running after one stray. They would think the rich man should just count it as a loss on the year-end report and move on and keep the 99. That's their posture I don't even know what would be the equivalent in our day, but we would probably see that as a waste. 
a pastor who wrote uh, a book called Disability in the Church, Lamar Hendricks, says that it's simply too risky to leave behind 99 to search for one when someone with those means could easily just acquire another sheep. Why care so much about something that is so replaceable? And Jesus is saying that which you see as waste, as a lost cause, is what Messiah has come to pursue. Mm. Their, view, their view of the kingdom is a community of the 99 righteous. They don't need to be rescued. They're the ones, the scribes and Pharisees, that stayed home. They're the well-behaved sheep. And lest they grumble that he's on again about the poor and disabled, he brings it home with the parable of the lost coin. So here's 10 drachmas and one is missing, and they can all relate to this. One day's wages is lost. Of course you would find that coin. Of course, that one has value, and the woman turns the house upside down for it, and then when it's found, she invites her friends to celebrate. Jesus says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the kingdom that Jesus is building, that he's preaching about, inviting people into rescued sinners, lost that are found, made family. And he values the lost. He came for them. If he just stopped there, the Pharisees may have assumed that they were the coins in the story because that's more relatable. And of course, we're each of great value. But from this canvas then of value of all humanity, those that you don't think have value that are actually easily replaceable and those that are quite worthy of searching. From that canvas of finding and rescuing He paints a fuller picture of his grace, his mercy, and his love. And then Jesus gives what is the most studied parable in all of Scripture, highlighting the dangers that actually wreck community that he is creating. And in this story, he also gives the solution to those problems. So we turn to the parable of the prodigal son. And the first problem is just the idolatry of immature immorality. Here we have a family. So even Jesus is using this image of community, a family, a man with two sons, the younger brother, who we might think is the star of the parable because some French guy long ago labeled this the parable parable of the prodigal son. And often how we read it, uh, that turns out to be who is the star of the show. And we don't know much about this guy other than he wants out of the family. He wants to cash in on his inheritance. We don't know the reasons behind the decision, but we can assume, like we can put on a first century hat, we can think of our own desires for life, and maybe we can come up with some reasons. He doesn't have the privileged place of his older brother, so he might want to strike out on his own, maybe prove himself that he actually has worth and he just needs the cash for that or it could be as simple as he's just sick of working the field for his father whatever the motivation it wasn't enough just to be a son he's rejecting the father in this moment he's rejecting his love his provision his identity and you've probably heard it said before that this type of request would have been just like saying i wish you were dead 
to the Father. But he demands his share of the property nonetheless. It's like, settle up accounts now. And this, just like having 100 sheep, is absurd. Because what son would do this to a father in the first century? And still, what father would respond in this way to a son's request? And so you think eating with sinners is scandalous. No, a son asking for his his inheritance before his father is dead is beyond scandalous. Because the first century father of that day would have, upon this request, typically just beat his son and driven him out with curses. But the father in this story is different than the cultural norm of the day. And what's he do? He divides the property between them. One third of his property, one third of his cattle, one third of his land. And this is quite the endeavor. It's not like, yo, dad, can you just Venmo me your inheritance, my inheritance, right? There's no banks. There's not really cash. There's some coinage, but everything is wrapped up in property. And so a family's wealth for generations, maybe 15 generations from that moment, is the land that they work. Somehow he sells, apportions the land, and sets aside a third for this younger son. And then Luke tells us that he gathered all he had. And that language connotes the selling of his portion. At each step, probably losing valuation of it because you have to go to somebody who has enough cash, enough resource to give to you. And so it is gone. And with the prophets, he journeys to a far country where he squandered his property in reckless living, Luke tells us. In his immaturity, he rejects what is right and good, and he follows his heart. He lives his truth. He defines who he is for himself. He is convinced that this new life will finally fulfill. He can just get away from the family. He's impatient, despising what he had. And what sticks out to me here is that he has zero love for the father. That relationship wasn't enough to bring him happiness. The family was not worth it to the younger son. And he didn't want the father. He just wanted his father's stuff. And the father in the story is good. It's the son's idolatry keeping him from community. Tim Keller had written a lot about idolatry, and he says, what is an idol? It's anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. So in this parable, idolatry is that which absorbs the son's heart more than the father. I want more. I want the stuff. I want to manage my own portfolio, if you will, in this existence of life. And we don't even have to be tax collectors or sinners to get this. Henri Nouwen, uh, old um, Catholic, wasn't even a priest, but just a, a mission, a missionary among those with severe disabilities. He wrote a book reflecting on this story in a painting that depicts this story. He says, I'm the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. 
The son had the love of the father. He was in the family. The inheritance would certainly be his. But turning away from the father, rejecting him, reckless living, immorality is his thing. And later we'll see the older brother will accuse him of prostitution. We don't know that that's the type of reckless living, but we can assume because that's the accusation that's happening. But any way you slice it, it's a bad life kind of life that leaves you bankrupt financially, emotionally, and spiritually. When he spent everything he had, there was a famine. And so he hires himself out to feed pigs. It's for the culture, unclean and wrong. And we get how low this is, right? New Testament Christians, we're excited we can eat pigs, but not a single one of us wants to go feed them. It's so bad that he wanted to eat the same pods from the carrow tree that the pigs got. And then the verse that probably stuck out to me the most in the midst of this, thinking about community in verse 16, he says, and no one gave him anything. It's absent community. There's no friends. There's no family, all because of his immorality. He's lost it all. That which he thought would be an answer left him desperate. His newly acquired freedom had come at a high cost. And sometimes the truth is God lets us experience a tremendous fall because that's what it takes to open our eyes. And we expect the next story in our next sentence in this story to be essentially that he died lonely and starving. He says, where he's headed, no one is offering him anything, but that's not the type of story this is. And at his lowest moment, Luke says he came to himself. And he thinks that surely as a servant in my father's house, I'd be better off than this, than having nothing and no one. So he scripts his repentance, he gives his vulnerability in words, and he returns home. You know the story well. The father sees him a long way off and he runs and he embraces him, falling on his neck. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But before the son can even finish his scripted speech, the father father lavishes his grace on him. He orders for the fattened calf to be slaughtered and roasted. And that's a party for at least 75 people. And he just celebrates. The son has come home for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Jesus tells of this story. So immature immorality keeps him from community. But there's hope in turning. This is the good news coming to the Father. It's why all the tax collectors and sinners are hanging around Jesus. It's why the banquet is for all those who will come to him. One writer says, this is a beautiful picture of salvation and the restoration of erring saints. A destitute sinner comes to a holy God in repentance and faith with nothing to offer but desperate need. God the Father responds with love and compassion, granting the sinner all the privileges of sonship in the family and showering him with blessings. This is what we receive in the truth of the gospel. As the tax collectors and sinners, those far off, We can only imagine what the Pharisees, who this story is for, are thinking at this moment. 
Like, like a dumb old man, why would they give up his fortune to this kid and then welcome him back and give him more? But Jesus doesn't even give them a beat to think about it. He just knew their hearts and he unmasked the idolatry that kept them from community too. And it's the idolatry of mature morality. This story is called the prodigal son, but alas, there are in it two sons. And the older brother is likely who Jesus wants the Pharisees to recognize, right? Because this is them, those that are faithfully working, or at least think they're faithfully working. And as he comes back home, he hears this music and dancing, and he calls a servant over to find out what's going on. And the servant says to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. Where we want the older brother to be relieved and joyful that his little brother is actually back he takes a different tack. Like he has a different posture to the son's return here. And he's angry and he refuses to go in. He refuses to celebrate with his father and his brother and the household in this moment. And the older brother tells the father exactly why he's angry. And maybe it might resonate with some of us this morning. And he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? The younger son feels unworthy, but the older son is convinced that he is worthy and that the father has been unfair by throwing a party for the other brother. He even says to the father, this son of yours. Notice there, he's no longer his brother. It's just the son of yours, father. So we have here the same problem of a different culture. Color. The older brother ruins community and rejects family because the father celebrated his lost son. The older brother can't abide what was lost being found and brought to life again. He was moral. He was obedient, patient. But just like the younger brother, what he desires is the father's stuff, not the father. And so many of Jesus' parables tell of a person that receives, but then ends up getting indignant when someone else receives the same or more than they do, because it's so prevalent in that culture and even in our day. It's like we say, grace for me and no one else. It'd just be like if, if you got free tickets to a Padres game from a friend, right? Your friend was wealthy, he had a bunch of tickets, and he gives you free tickets. And you're super stoked. You get to go see the Padres. Split a series two to one against the Dodgers. It's going to be great. We'll take it, right? And at the game, though, you bump into another friend who got free tickets to the game from the same guy, but it turns out their tickets are 10 rows better than yours. So what happens? You spend the rest of the game mentally stewing over how you were slighted by that friend. Right? And in your grumbling, you totally miss the pleasure of the game. It's probably why the Padres lost. So you weren't cheering appropriately. 
But we become, like Tom Schreiner says, we become like the older brother if we go to church and pursue virtue but lack compassion and love for others. We show that we do not understand grace if we become angry when God does not reward us in the way that we expect. God does not owe us anything, but he graciously gives us all things we need in Christ Jesus. All things that we are to celebrate and rejoice when others are brought in. The older older brother, in the same way, just wants stuff. He wants the blessing, the wealth, the honor, the independence as much as the younger brother does, but he trusts in his own performance for it. This is his idolatry, and he misses the relationship with the father. The father who he is always with, that is all of that is his, is this son's, yet he won't celebrate when the dead comes alive, when the lost are found. Unfortunately, this parable is about the older brother because Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes in this moment. Jesus wanted these self-righteous leaders who had no compassion on the lost to see themselves in that brother. And then the story just hangs there. Jesus doesn't say any more in this parable. The point likely is to woo the scribes and Pharisees out of grumbling into celebration that the wayward have come home, into community of the kingdom, maybe even invite them into repentance for their idolatry and despising the Father in his ways. One writer says, the parable ends in with this question, will the older brother come to the party? Will the Pharisees and scribes share the same joy of God and the angels over the return of the tax collector and sinners? The invitation is open. Jesus invites them to celebrate and enjoy God's forgiveness as well. The choice is up to them. What will they do? Will they miss community because they don't like who's been invited to the banquet? Will they reject the family because they desire the material stuff of the father more than the father himself? Or will they come? Will they celebrate? That's what the parable puts before us and the questions that it asks of us as we see ourselves in both the younger son and the older brother. If we stay in the story, though, we can see what makes the difference. It's not ultimately the repentance of the immoral son or even the realization of the moral son. It's the love of the father that defines the family. The love of the father. This father is different. Even if we don't have the cultural eyes to see how different this father is from a first century father. This father is reckless in giving into the request of his child's share. He's reckless running out to the son. Men of dignity would never run anywhere. There's reckless extravagance to celebrate a rescue. Like we might look at it like, I'll welcome the son back, but he's going to earn back what he lost. Not this father. There's even reckless entreating of the older brother that he goes from the celebration out to find the lost sheep that is the older brother and invite him back into the party. It's all out of love. What was meant to be enough for them, what when seen rightly would keep them from idolatry, both immoral and moral, what creates a community that feasts and dances together is this love that he has. 
It's a mere picture of the extravagant love of the Father for us. Everyone who has ears in this moment of Jesus telling this story understands that. We see it elsewhere in Scripture. They may have been familiar with some of the Old Testament reflection on the steadfast, eternal love of the Lord. Micah 7 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. We see it in the New Testament with bold letters. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Paul will tell us that God shows his love for us that, in, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this Messiah coming, inviting everyone to the banquet, talking about the existence of this family and the love of the Father, actually comes to die Because of the love. So God's love is realized in our rescue in Jesus. That we were the immature one. Rejecting him and running after foolishness. Yet he welcomed us home. That we were the mature one. Expecting a prize and missing that he is actually our prize. Still he remains with us. This love that Jesus is showing in this Father is for us. And it's also for others. It's supposed to make us giddy when others come alive to it too. This is the love that forms us into a family that we have been these sons wandering, wayward, present, but perturbed. And still his love keeps us. This love is what keeps us then from idolatry and increasingly helps us recognize that his love is enough, that he is enough. And it's a love that leads us to repentance, that gives us breath to sing and feet to dance with, that leads us to rejoice with one another in our rescue because we are family. And I think it's the point of the story of this parable of all the parables, of this chapter of Scripture, and all of the Scripture. The Father's love for us worked through the obedient Son. Henri Nouwen, again in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, says this of his whole life. For the most of my life, I've struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I've tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and to avoid the many temptations to dissipate myself. I've failed many times, but always tried again, even when I was close to despair. Now, I wonder whether I have sufficiently realized that during all this time, God has been trying to find me, to know me. And to love me. The question is not how am I to find God, but how am I to let myself be found by him? The question is not how am I to know God, but how am I to let myself be known by God? And finally, the question is not how am I to love God, but how am I to let myself be loved by God? God is looking into the distance for me, trying to find me and longing to bring me home. And that's our question as well. How am I to let myself be loved by God? And how am I to let that love form how I live 
to celebrate his rescue. The Father's love forms a family. The point is, don't miss it. Our response is simple. First, just be loved. Realize this love of the Father, that Jesus wants the Pharisees to see it. He wants us to see it, and he gives himself so that we can experience it and accept it. Brennan Manning, a great writer, says, Define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self. Every other identity is illusion. If you know nothing else today, know that the Father loves you. That love is experienced through the grace of Christ, his sacrifice for you. Just experience and accept that love. Then when you sensed it when you recognize it repent come home turn back not for gain but simply because he is good because he is enough and then live where the pharisees were incapable of enjoying life with this king rejoice with the angels love others until they ask why this is our family All of us prodigals, all of us loved. It is fitting to celebrate. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for stories in your ministry that unpack the truth of your kingdom and the deeper things that drive your ministry your finished work and the existence of the kingdom and here we see it as the love of the father and if we're honest we often take that love for granted we just assume and presume upon it perhaps but we just ask holy spirit that you would work in us a reminder of the father's love for us that you'd pour his love into our hearts as your word says that we'd be at rest because we are loved, that we would set aside the idolatry of pursuing stuff and that we'd settle with the extravagance of who you are, being in relationship with you. Lord, in that, help us to celebrate well. Help us to be those servants that compel others to come into this banquet of love, into your family, into the kingdom, that together we would rejoice at your rescue, the work that you've done for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.